0: Hello and welcome to Annual Reviews Audio, part of the Conversation series from Annual Reviews, where insightful research begins. I'm your host Ana Rascueta Paz. In each episode of our show, we feature top scientists in fields ranging from astrophysics to sociology. In this episode, P. James E. Peebles, Albert Einstein Professor of Science Emeritus at Princeton University, talks about his life and career with Sandra Faber, University Professor of Astronomy and Astrophysics at the University of California, Santa Cruz, and editor of the Annual Review of Astronomy and Astrophysics. Dr. Peebles, who grew up in Winnipeg, Canada, began his studies at the University of Manitoba, where he entered the engineering program, eventually transferring to physics. On his advisor, Ken Standing's urging, Dr. Peebles moved to Princeton University and joined the working group of Robert H. Dickey, in which he studied gravity physics. Dr. Peebles went on to develop the field of physical cosmology, and his work contributed to establishing the Big Bang model and furthering our understanding of dark matter, dark energy, and the theory of structure formation.
1: Hello, everybody. My name is Sandra Faber, and I'm a professor of astronomy at the University of California, Santa Cruz. And it's my pleasure today to interview PJE Peebles, who is a distinguished professor of physics and cosmology at Princeton. Jim, as we more familiarly refer to him, has been the recipient of many outstanding awards, including the Shaw Prize and the Crawford Prize. And I was grasping today for an appropriate word to introduce his role and I I thought of uh, a founder of modern cosmology, I thought of uh, a giant of modern cosmology, I thought of a father of modern cosmology, but I quickly moved past that because we know that fathers can have a big effect that's temporary not continuing in their lives of their progeny, and I wanted to convey something that was more sustained and larger in impact over time. So what I've finally settled on is to call Jim the inventor of modern physical cosmology. So with those words, let me say less and let Jim say more. Jim, welcome. Thank you. Uh, So I'm hoping that we're going to hear a lot about your scientific work, but why don't we start out with your background as a young man. Tell us where you were from.
2: Born in Manitoba, Canada, the center of the country, uh, to, I would say, blue-collar people, but on the upper edge of that, the lower edge, perhaps, of white-collar. Uh, what did your dad do? My dad was an accountant at the Winnipeg Grain Exchange, the uh, pioneer grain company. In those days, all the grain production in Western Canada, which on a good year is vast, was handled by private companies. It's now been nationalized, but he worked for one of the companies, Pioneer Grain.
1: Mm-hmm. And did you have brothers and sisters? I
2: have two older sisters, one gone recently, the other still with us very much.
1: Were they scientifically inclined?
2: No, not at all. Mm-hmm. Very bright, very capable, and my older sister, Audrey, quite artistic, but she ended up teaching school, mm-hmm. which is a valuable thing to do, and I think is now going back to teaching school because she enjoys it so much, well, although that's, that's long Long since retired.
1: Good. Okay. So I'm picturing Winnipeg, a
2: mm-hmm.
1: pretty big city even then, right? I mean, not yes. a small town. And the high school you went with you went to, how sophisticated was that? Uh,
2: not very. I lived in uh, a suburb first of St. Boniface. Important to know that Winnipeg Manitoba was founded as a bilingual province, mm-hmm. French and English, alongside Winnipeg, the Anglophone city, there was St. Boniface, the Franc- francophone city. but there's always an instability, isn't there? One language takes over, and that happened in any case. I grew up. I was born in uh, St. Boniface Hospital, but lived in an Anglophone suburb of the francophone St. Boniface called Norwood. Hmm. From there, we moved to St. Vital, uh, began as francophone, ended up as Anglophone, a very small community in those days, so my high school had, what, a graduating class of maybe 15. Wow. In the
1: In the entire high school?
2: The entire high school.
1: Wow, wow. Um, And yet you studied physics there. How did they mount a credible physics program? They
2: didn't. Uh, I remember high school as a wonderful time for fun and games. I learned to square dance, had lots of fun with friends. I think I must have annoyed my teachers no end because I soon found I could pass the exams without doing anything, and that's what I did. (laughs) So I came out of high school with, well, I didn't know about trigonometry, calculus. Mm. Uh, I was not only an indolent student, but I also gave little time to what I might do with myself. So uh, I did notice that I liked to build things, and I had the vague idea that engineers built things, so I enrolled in the Department of Engineering at the U of M, University of Manitoba. Mm
1: -hmm. And what year was that?
2: Uh, <laughs> I have to calculate. I graduated in 65. I lost a year because of transferring to physics. So it would be 63. Yeah, okay. No, f- f- 53. 53. Yeah. So I, I spent two years at the engineering, and it was all right. I would have been, I think, a um, mediocre engineer at best. To my et- eternal uh, good luck. A friend asked me why I was complaining so much about the lack of physics courses. Why don't you transfer to physics? Ah. Mm-hmm. So I did,
1: and that was that. Sort of set the rest of the course of your life. It was
2: wonderful. <laughs> Suddenly, I I, 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 mean, I stopped whining and complaining, and I started doing my homework. <laughs> right. And I discovered that I love physics.
1: So did you do research as an undergraduate?
2: No, no research. I wrote an independent paper on quantum mechanics. It was courses. Mm-hmm. There were a lot of them. Mm-hmm. So I ended up leaving the University of Manitoba with a very sound knowledge of classical mechanics, classical physics of all sorts. We didn't get too far into the modern era. So mm-hmm. when I went to Princeton... And,
1: and why did, you, why did why your attention uh, become focused on Princeton? How did you learn about that?
2: Because one of my teachers at uh, University of Manitoba, Ken Standing, had been a graduate student with uh, Ruby Schur at Princeton University in nuclear physics, and Ken was convinced that I must go to Princeton.
1: Ah, so they, he must have seen some great promise in you.
2: He must have, um, and he also had good contacts at Princeton, and he arranged that I should be in, accepted. Fabulous. It was due to Ken.
3: Ah, okay.
2: We're still close. Uh huh. He's um, still alive. He's still doing, still doing research. Uh-huh. It's really great. There at the University of Manitoba, he does mass measurements of macromolecules, uh-huh. uh, a, a subtle art that he's mastered, and he's now become uh, a world, world treasure mm-hmm. on, on measurements of masses of big molecules.
1: Okay. So yeah. let's follow you now to Princeton. Right. And uh, you're moving from an undergraduate degree, kind of out in the sticks, but. Nevertheless, pretty solid preparation, but now you're moving to an acme of the most sophisticated thought in the world of physics. What was that transition well, like
2: for you? It was from a big fish in a little pond yeah. to just the opposite. I was astounded by the, number of, by the amount people knew that I didn't know. So it was a pretty traumatic first few months, first year perhaps.
1: Did it, did it shatter your confidence in some way?
2: No, luckily, uh, it taught me that I better work still harder, but I was happy to do that. I loved the courses at Princeton, uh, and I took—in fact, I took the—we had graduate general examinations in those days, and uh, I was confident enough to take them on the first at the end of the first year, rather than the second, as is usually done. And I got through okay. Mm-hmm.
1: And so then you began looking for a research projects.
2: Yes, and I was convinced I wanted to do particle physics. Uh, in, in what capacity? Well, As uh, a, a, theoretical particle the- the- physics. Theoretical, okay. Uh, it was a dismal time to get into theoretical particle physics unless you knew the trick, which was not dispersion relations, the big idea of the time, but rather let's get into uh, gauge symmetries of yeah. quantum field theory. Mm-hmm. When I arrived in 1958, we had Feynman and others had solved QED quantum electrodynamics. That was new but solved. Particle physics for the strong interactions was considered not to be appropriate for quantum field theory. Instead, there were many other tricks tried. For me to have entered that field would have required, well, I think more mathematical intuition than I have. Mm -hmm. Again, an amazing stroke of luck, Bob Dickey,
1: Tell us about Dickey. Obviously, a formative influence in your... Uh, Quite a guy, quite a guy.
2: He started out... um, He was an undergraduate for two years at Princeton University, went to Rochester to nuclear physics. The war came. He was recruited to go to MIT, Cambridge, to the radiation laboratory for war research, played a big role. And among his inventions was the Dickey microwave radiometer. Right just the device needed to detect the radiation left over from the Big Bang. As it happened. As it happened. <laughs> right. After the war, he was invited back to Princeton. He brought his radiometer with him, but he records that he felt it would be inappropriate to do astronomy in a, in a physics in laboratory. Physics? Oh, really? So he turned to quantum, what, what you might call these days quantum optics. Made some tremendously deep inventions, including uh, Dickey uh, uh, super-radiance, a condition in which atoms are coherently radiating as a single quantum state. Ah. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Magnificent. He, he had an early patent for the, the laser, which he didn't... In fact, I have his, his academic books, which I treasure. These are note lab notebooks? Well, somewhere. not the notebooks. I don't know where they went. But mm-hmm. he had bound volumes of papers, and he had bound volumes of his patents, Two thick volumes of patents for everything from a washing machine <laughs> to the laser. <laughs> uh-huh. Broadly interested person. Yeah. Uh, but he had decided just before I arrived that gravity physics was totally uh, unrecognized as an important branch of physics. At the time... By
1: that meant general relativity?
2: General relativity was accepted as the theory, but never applied, practically never applied to anything. It was taught, Mm -hmm. and you were required to learn it in those days, but it was an empty field. Mm -hmm. Uh, Two people at Princeton decided that that's wrong, John Wheeler on the theoretical side, Bob Dickey on the experimental side. Mm. So Bob, in short order, set up a group devoted to the study of gravity physics a wonderful series of experiments done. Well, for example, one has active gravitational mass. How strongly does this body gravitationally attract other bodies? And passive mass, how strongly is it attracted by other bodies? The
1: Etfoss experiment.
2: Well, the Etfoss experiment he redid. Mm-hmm. He also, uh, with a student, Jimmy Fowler, did the experiment of filling a tank with a fluid in which is submerged a solid of a different composition but the same density. Mm. That means that the passive masses are the same in the fluid and sphere. Mm -hmm. But are the gravitational masses the same, the active ones? How clever. So move the ball back and forth and ask if it pulls on a torsion pendulum.
1: Isn't that interesting? Beautiful
2: experiments.
1: You know, um, if I could just interrupt and say, I think I learned in one brief afternoon How to design an experiment by listening to a colloquium by Bob Dickey. Yeah. And it was the colloquium he gave at Swarthmore on the measurement of the oblateness of the sun. And it was fascinating to listen to him run through every systematic effect. It was just, it was an encyclopedia of knowledge in a brief hour. It was wonderful.
2: He strongly believed that the best experiments are those that are designed on purpose. (laughs) Right. Rather different from the mode of operation of astronomy in which you have a general purpose instrument. Exactly. He liked special purpose instruments. Right. Mm -hmm. I remember him strongly approving of Martin Shortshield's project Stratoscope in which a balloon raised a telescope for the purpose of looking at solar granulation. One goal, design the experiment for that goal specifically, it'll be optimum for that goal.
3: Yes. Uh-huh. And, of
2: course, you'll spend endless time on systematics. Right. But that's part of the design of the experiment.
1: Well, this is not about Bob. This is about Jim. So let's move on to how the work in that group managed to propel you into a thesis project.
2: Right. Um, well, I, I should tell you that I came, as I said, I came convinced that I was destined to be a particle physicist, particle theorist. Mm-hmm. Uh, To my great fortune, it turns out that uh, while I was a graduate student from the University of Manitoba, there were two other graduate students from the University of Manitoba. Bob Moore doing particle physics, as did Ken Standing earlier. No, Bob Pollack doing particle physics and Bob Moore working with Bob Dickey. Bob Moore saw that I looked a little lost when I arrived and took me to Bob's research group meetings, which were held Friday night.
1: Oh, boy.
2: (laughs) But we all went because it was so fascinating.
1: Uh
2: And uh, there, uh, it was a wonderful... So much of gravity physics was open to examination then. So many doors have been closed because general relativity is so successful. That wasn't obvious at all then. And to hear all the speculation about experiments that could be done the use to be made of, of, of geology as evidence of what happened in the past and how gravity might have affected it. Astronomy within the solar system, uh, how the planets have evolved and how their properties might, affect, might have been affected by the properties of gravity. It was just a wonderful time. Mm-hmm. A wonderful time for me in particular, I guess, because I, am, I do enjoy things, phenomena, and I enjoy them particularly if there's something to analyze, mm-hmm. some measurement that could be turned to some account.
1: So tell us about your first project.
2: Early projects... And
1: was it, it wasn't a thesis project quite yet?
2: No, no. Mm-hmm. There were early projects. Uh, for example, Hughes-Drever experiment was elegant. Take an atomic system with a spin and rotate it. Does its energy change? Mm. Okay. In general relativity theory, the answer is no. Mm-hmm. Even though there are massive bodies around and they're acting on it in different ways, and even though we are moving through space-time, as defined by the nearby galaxies, at a pretty high velocity, surely that motion could have some effect on the atom. And if you have the atom has a preferred direction, its spin, surely if you put the spin along the direction of our motion or perpendicular to it, its energy might change. Hughes and Drever showed that that effect, if it's real, is tiny. Bob Dickey and I carried on analyses of that effect and wrote a little paper. I did several computations.
1: Let me mention one. Uh, you got interested in the fine structure constant and yes. Dirac's theories for yes. why it was small. Yes. Well, Why don't we mention that because I want to come back to that later, that general concept.
2: That's my uh, the fine structure constant was my Ph.D. thesis, right? Mm-hmm. Right, and it was Bob's idea. Uh, I didn't have too many ideas in those days. What I really loved doing was taking an idea and running with it.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And so I ran the yeah. <laughs> fine structure constant. Um, my limits... So what based... were you
1: doing with regard to that? Well, what was
2: the so question? So if, if the strength of the electromagnetic interaction, the fine structure constant, changed over historical time, then radioactive decay rates would change because the strength of electromagnetism changes energy levels. Different radioactive decay schemes depend on the strength of the electromagnetic interaction in different ways. And so if the electromagnetic interaction strength had evolved, um, there would be uh, differences, systematic differences between radioactive decays derived from different decay schemes.
1: Now, we might think that it is that the fine structure constant is declining because it's small. Is that one reason w- that would right. motivate that sort of thought? In those
2: days, that was one reason. Another in those days what the, was that the strength of the electromagnetic interaction is really small. <laughs> And that idea, the idea that maybe it's small because the universe is old and it's been decaying, goes back to Dirac. Dirac, that's right. Once you think the strength of the electromagnetic interaction is decaying, why not other other things? Yeah, other things. That's right. Of course, the thinking now is very different. It's superstring theory, but mm-hmm. it's curious that the thinking remains.
1: Well, we'll come back to topics later we'll in which we <laughs> we might want to to yes. dredge up these concepts again. But tell us quickly, if you can, what you found out about the evolution of the fine structure constant? I
2: found out that it, there's no evidence for it to change. I put a limit on its change over the last 4 billion years, 4 10 to the ninth years, which is only two orders of magnitude larger than the present limits yeah. uh-huh. uh, over a larger time scale. Uh-huh. I also learned how to do uh, make theoretical models. I, I made a model for the evolution of the fine structure constant that uh, I could tune to be consistent with the Atfish experiment and other measurements. Mm-hmm. So I constructed a model, and I tested it.
1: So what year would that have been?
2: Uh, I tend to lose track of these things. I'm thinking 1961, could it have been? Approximately, early 60s.
1: So did you move directly from being a Ph.D. student into a faculty position? Oh, No. Oh, no. What was the history of that?
2: Well, the plan was to go back to Canada.
1: Uh-huh.
2: But now I stay a year or two as a postdoc.
1: Oh, there were postdocs then?
2: I was a postdoc. It was called a research fellow, I think.
1: Uh-huh.
2: It was a fine position. I didn't have to teach. I could just calculate. Right. So, and I did.
1: So meanwhile, I gather the Dickey group uh, wilkinson and so on gathered forces and started trying to look for the cosmic microwave background
2: right again bob's idea i wish i had asked him and, and you're Moore. a postdoc at that point. i'm a well i right? might have become by then a junior faculty member in those days we had research associates who were postdocs we had junior we had assistant professors which was a transient appointment uh, typically lasting three to six years and then goodbye. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of them in those days, mm-hmm. an immensely valuable resource. Uh, we got brilliant minds.
0: The,
2: the brilliant minds got a good place to work. Now, I think it worked for both sides, but it certainly, yeah, that, I was still planning to go back to Canada. Um, let's see, where were we? Uh, Bob one day decided, you know, we might want to look and see if the universe is filled with thermal radiation he explained his reasoning but i might and it is that if the universe is expanding well he did love to ask the question and you repeated it. i remember it quite a few times if this universe is expanding what did it do before it was expanding
1: ah okay well let's talk about that for a moment
2: he his only his thought was the only reasonable answer is it's a bounce mhm but bounces are chaotic events and must create entropy mhm and so a bounce is going to make the universe hot. Right. Mm-hmm. Thermal radiation. Let's look for it. Mm-hmm. There is a tantalizing trail uh, leading back to Gamov, who, remember in the late '40s, asked himself the question, "Where did the heavy elements come from? The thought, perhaps they were formed in the early universe, where pressures were high and nuclear reactions could obtain. His early ideas, including a celebrated paper by uh, him and his, his student, Ralph Alpher, with, um, with Hans Bethe added so that it could be alpha beta gamma Right. Gamov,
3: <laughs> Exactly.
2: Uh, had many of the important ideas, including buildup by neutron capture, but it was internally inconsistent. Mm-hmm. So, wonder, it's remarkable to me that, that that is not advertised. You put in the numbers, they don't work.
1: Is that right? That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. I've never heard that said before.
2: And Ralph Alpher said it in his thesis.
1: Ah,
3: okay.
2: The following year, the Alpha, Beta, Gamma paper was 1947. 1948, uh, Gamma writes a very short paper, not acknowledging the inconsistency, but resolving it. Ah, let the expanding universe be hot to begin with
1: I see okay. that was
2: the hot big bang. His calculation of deuterium production is now standard,
1: but he only went up
2: to deuterium. He went up to deuterium mm-hmm. uh, deuterium burns quickly to hydrogen, so to, to helium so let 's give him hydrogen and helium, and that 's pretty much all that is created in the hot big bang. Mm-hmm. He tried to add the heavier elements, of course. Uh, that never worked out. Now it's stars. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Gamov continued to argue for the presence of thermal radiation in later years.
1: Now, the question is, did Dickey know about that?
2: Here are some hints. Uh, uh, in 1981, in a magazine whose name I've forgotten, uh, Fred Hoyle, uh, wrote reminiscences of talking first to Gamov about Gamov's idea of a hot universe, and Hoyle's pointing out to Gamov that there is interstellar cyanogen,
3: mm-hmm.
2: which has a low-lying energy level that can be thermally excited if the temperature is uh, high enough, a few degrees Kelvin. It was observed to be thermally excited or excited by something, uh, suggesting a temperature of around 2 degrees. Right. Uh, Fred Hoyle recalls saying to Gamov, "Your hot universe won't work. We have an upper limit. It can be at most 2 degrees."
3: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and not
2: noticing that it could be 2 degrees. Yeah,
3: exactly. <laughs>
1: he
2: then says, "I remember having the same discussion with Bob Dickey."
1: Ah. All right.
2: Now, did Bob Dickey remember that?
1: Well, that's an interesting question. Did Dickey have when you're dis- you you just told us that Dickey liked very purpose-built experiments. Yes. So he must have been shooting for some temperature. Did he know what he was shooting for? No.
2: No, no, he didn't. I Just could, the
1: lowest possible thing. Let's
2: put a limit on it, mm-hmm. see if it could be there. I see. This is the case where, in fact, I was assigned. Uh, he said to Dave Wilkinson and, Bob and, and, and Peter Roll, go look into how to build this thing. Then they agreed to do it. He said to me, think about the theoretical implications. Mm-hmm. That was it.
3: Yeah, I see.
2: But of course, a great person can make casual remarks that shake the world. (laughs) (laughs) So Uh,
1: let's not go too much farther into the actual discovery since there's reams written about that, including your own Finding the Big Bang, which... It right. sounds like a fascinating account. It's a
2: wonderful read.
1: <laughs> if you do say so You'd yourself. You to be
2: more well-known, because it is fascinating essays. Okay,
1: well, well, by virtue of this interview, it will now Thank become you. very well-known. That would
2: be the end of the commercial interruption. <laughs> yeah, that's right.
1: So, um, the theoretical implication that you looked into was nucleosynthesis, isn't it yes. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: yeah. I didn't realize I was reinventing gamma's wheel.
1: Mm. It's amazing what people didn't... Re- no, then. It's really got lost.
2: Yes, that's a whole article in Sociology of Science, isn't it? Yeah. But we needn't go into that. Uh, I also recognized that this radiation would have a profound effect on structure formation.
1: Oh, you did? Well, yeah. um, since since primordial nucleosynthesis is probably a somewhat familiar topic to people listening to this interview, let's talk about that because that right. is very interesting.
2: So in the early universe hot. thought uh, Matter would be thermally ionized. You would have a plasma. The plasma interacts with the radiation dominantly by Compton scattering by electrons. That makes matter and radiation act as a fluid with viscosity. Mm-hmm. That fluid has a high pressure.
1: Yeah. Do you think, would you say that you're the person who first figured that out?
2: I guess so. huh. And in particular, the fact that that high pressure means you can't make galaxies at high redshift. They'll be torn apart. By radiation pressure. Right. Mm -hmm. It sets a time when structure can start to form, Mm -hmm. decoupling. When the matter is cooled to the point that the electrons can reattach themselves, suddenly space becomes transparent, the radiation is released, structure formation can commence.
1: Gravity can do its thing.
2: Make globular clusters.
1: Yeah, exactly. So you wrote a paper with Dickey on that. Uh Yeah, yeah. Yeah, one of your most famous papers.
2: I still think it's a sad conspiracy if those globular clusters aren't the first generation, that they have so many of the properties of the first generation, (laughs) but we'll see.
1: Well, now, before we leave this uh, era of the great discovery of this cosmic microwave background radiation, let me ask you a philosophical question. What thoughts were you thinking as a physicist to realize that you'd just done a calculation to explain one of the most fundamental properties of the universe, namely its helium content, And you were appealing to the fact that physics, three minutes after the Big Bang, was the same as our physics or could be inferred from physics today. What Did you reflect on that remarkable fact?
2: You have to remember that in those days we didn't know that the helium abundance is high. We had hints, but Uh not know. So you
1: felt you were making a prediction rather than a verification?
2: Uh, I would even put it less weakly. We felt we'd done a calculation that might or might not be relevant. I see. (laughs) Uh, Until the radiation was detected, this was a wide open game. How do you know there's even been a Big Bang? What's wrong with that steady state theory? Yeah. So it was highly speculative. And uh, even after we made contact with Penzias and Wilson and the Bell Laboratories, detection unrecognized of this radiation. Even afterward, I wasn't at all convinced that we had the right theory of the expanding universe. How do you know this radiation isn't produced by stars or some other process? Mm -hmm. In fact, it took the discovery 65, or rather the recognition 1965, the demonstration of a thermal spectrum 1990, 25 years later. Right. During that time, I was always conscious of the fact that there was an apparent anomaly in the spectrum that could tell us that we're looking at least in not quite the right direction because if that anomaly were real, it would have meant an enormous source of energy shaking up the universe.
1: Yes, and that anomaly was?
2: The intensity of the radiation at short wavelengths, short wavelengths. much too big.
1: Yes, right. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah.
2: It should have been a clue to me that the anomaly was detected several times, but it was always different. (laughs) But still, I tend to pay attention to measurements. I like making connections of measurements to calculations.
1: Right. I always see that theorists are a bit at the mercy of observers who come along with new numbers. (laughs) You observers
2: tend to complain about us theorists offering you predictions that are wrong. But (laughs) that street flows both ways.
1: I'm sure it does. Well... Let's now move on to sort of the consequences of the Big Bang discovery. And my next date on the calendar is 1969, when you wrote a paper that I don't even think you mentioned, at least not strongly in your biography, your prefatory chapter, and that was The Origin of Angular Momentum of Galaxies. Right. And that was actually the first paper you wrote that really got my attention, partly because I could understand it. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> and partly because you were studying ellipticals.
1: I was. I was, a, I was really fascinated by galaxies and why yes. they rotated and so right. on. So this, to me, is, is a, a really great paper. So just tell us briefly how you got interested in this. And are you now thinking about the, the formation of structure from a, a spectrum of density fluctuations? Is that I am, indeed. Yeah?
2: Yes, yes. I was thinking scale invariance.
1: Uh, explain uh, in, that in just a sentence.
2: Uh, that 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 the mass distribution is not dead homogeneous. We know that because we're here in lumps. Mm-hmm. That it must uh, these departures from homogeneity must must perturb space time if we are to believe general relativity theory, and that you would not like to have f- mass fluctuations so large as to cause singularities in the in space time. Mm-hmm. Uh, that spectrum that doesn't cause singularities on any scale is scale invariant. Right, turns out to be pretty close to what's observed. It's, ama- it's
1: amazing with a few little evolutionary processes right, involved. Right, right. Right. Mm-hmm. right,
2: somehow ideas of simplicity and elegance often pay off. They do. Uh-huh. They often fail, of course. Bear <laughs> in mind. Right. Um, by that point, I really liked the notion that galaxies formed by, dominantly by the, inter- by the effect of gravity, gathering matter together.
1: Was anybody else saying that at that time?
2: People were saying the opposite, that gravitational instability won't work.
1: Why did they do that?
2: Uh, one reason, uh, the space-time curvature fluctuations I me- mentioned. Um, although our universe began, the evidence is now, I think, compelling, the universe began as a very nearly dead smooth mass distribution, the tiniest of irregularities. But the density was so high then that those small irregularities in the mass distribution made spacetime curvature fluctuations that are comparable to today. Yep.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: In
2: other words, in a sense, structure was built in in the initial conditions.
1: Absolutely. Ugly. Mm-hmm. I so, think beautiful. Well, Ugly? What's ugly about that? <laughs>
2: you didn't explain the origin of structure. You ah, put it in.
1: Ah, okay. Of we'll course, come back to that very point. you <laughs> will
2: put it in late, earlier. Okay. But there was that problem, unesthetic. Still, um, I had made numerical simulations of structure formation pathetic by today's standards but enough to show gosh look at the growth of things that look like galaxies.
1: Mm-hmm. So you already had some feeling for how big these ripples had to be. Oh yes yeah. within
2: GR you know how big they have to be. Exactly. All can be quantified. Mm-hmm. We had analytic arguments to see how the structure would grow into something you might be willing to call a galaxy and we had a few pathetically weak but not uninteresting simulations that showed the same thing. Well, if it's gravity that caused galaxies to form, why are they spinning? Mm. So I had to answer that question. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I calculated it.
1: Did your simulations help you see the effect?
2: Those simulations were so weak that No. it was more the analytic side. Uh-huh. You understand that I grew up, I became conditioned to simulations that are schematic at best. And so I I, I tend always to to revert to analytics.
1: I I think I heard you give a talk on your simulations of the collapse of the coma cluster. Yes. I seem to recall that there were 300 particles in that. Uh
2: (laughs) And do you know that I made that simulation? Yes, it was made at Los Alamos National Laboratory. Mm -hmm. An amazing thing to me to this day, I was Canadian, yet I was allowed to use weapon-grade computers (laughs) to do this simulation. (laughs) <laughs> and I let it run a simulation typically would take a weekend.
1: Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> Amazing. And, With 300 particles.
2: Yeah. So, no, the angular momentum problem was driven by my desire to to hold on to gravitational instability.
1: Right. So now you're thinking about um, not galaxies, I assume, but also clusters of galaxies, what we would today call large-scale structure. Right. And I'd like to move into what some would say is perhaps your greatest contribution to cosmology, namely the mathematics of clustering. And tell us a little bit about why you thought the correlation function for galaxies would be a powerful tool.
2: I I think it's because, first, I'd seen it used in so many other areas of natural science. Correlation functions are everywhere.
1: Everywhere? Give give us some examples. Oh, well...
3: What's a
2: good as an example? Uh, c- scores in, in, in first grade compared to scores correlated with scores <laughs> okay. in second grade. Okay. <laughs> it's everywhere. You, yeah. we, we take averages, we take... But this was the first
1: time I had ever seen it applied to a, a 3D spatial process. It was, that was see. new to me.
2: Yes, it might have been... But you know, oceanographers applied it to two dimensions, the height of the surface I, water. Right, yeah. Um, so it, it was a natural statistic, Uh, Variations of it were used, for example, in the Etfish experiment at Princeton. So um, the unnatural thing was to use the Fourier transform of a correlation function or the spherical harmonic transform, the power spectrum. That was even newer. In fact, I, I don't know that many people thought of using power spectra, but there was a book by another, coincidentally, another Princeton professor in statistics. Why can't I think of his name? Tukey? Yeah, Tukey, John Tukey,
3: mm-hmm.
2: who wrote a book with Blackman called Measurement of Power Spectra. That's right. A classic, mm-hmm. in which I read that you should use power spectra, not their transform correlation function. Exactly.
1: Mm-hmm. It depends on where nature is putting the information. That's right. If nature is putting the information at one frequency, then you would better look at power spectra. Yes. If it's putting it at some lag or something like that, then you'd better look at correlation
2: Even though they're formally equivalent in a mathematical sense, they're in practice very different.
3: That's right. Mm -hmm.
2: And yes, power spectra were the the thing back... Oh, no, no, wait, wait, sorry. Power spectra are the thing now on large scales, but um, I saw that correlation functions are the thing on small scales. Mm -hmm. We found lots of patterns that I still like.
1: Well, for a while you were really... Uh, enamored of the power law correlation function? Still am. Ah.
2: Darn it. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes nature fools us. The power law is still there. It is now interpreted as an accidental transient artifact.
1: Right. Mm -hmm.
2: Well, maybe. Ah, so you
1: have a a little doubts about that? Well,
2: yes. Um, um, I think it's in part my conditioning. When I was learning to do science, everything was in doubt in the field of much was in doubt in astronomy, everything in cosmology, I still uh, resist, react with caution to any idea that I don't see well tested.
1: Well, let me just uh, put in a personal note by saying that the, the deep survey has measured evolution in the correlation function and seems to see some sign of the transient effect.
2: And you see some sign of a departure from a power law.
1: Exactly. That's right. Um, Now let me, moving somewhat chronologically here, move to the question of dark matter in galaxies. And again, a pair of papers that you didn't feature very much but had a big influence on me, and that's your work with Ostreicher and also with Yahil. So the point of these papers was to suggest that we could better understand the dynamics of galaxies and also clusters of galaxies if we thought of Galaxies as being the visible inner parts of bigger dark matter halos. Right. Is that a fair summary? of? That's what, a fair summary. How did you get interested in that and start on that project? Uh,
2: well, of course, there were several, always there are several routes. Uh, but remember, I wrote a book called uh, Physical Cosmology. Yep. And in it, I spent a lot of time uh, on examples of our lack of understanding of mass Look at mass in different ways. You get different answers for the total mass density.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: One of them, even in the book, was rotation curves of galaxies. The circular velocity is a function of distance from the center. It didn't make sense.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But then the, the dynamics of groups, the dynamics of clusters didn't make sense either.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Then Jerry Ostreicher, you remember, uh, was interested in the stability of rotating systems for stars.
1: Because... Early simulations were showing that if you had a pure disk, it would be unstable.
2: Yeah. Well, in fact, we came at this from Jerry's point of view from simulations of rotating stars.
1: Ah, I see. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: He then uh, decided that perhaps a rotating disk would be unstable on theoretical grounds. And I had come back from Los Alamos with some modest skills in simulations. And somehow we made contact with each other on this point and decided to study simulations of rotating disks and their stability, mm-hmm. numerical simulations. I think that was the first time these, the instability of a rotating disk had been studied in simulations.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So you wrote this pair of papers arguing that day, that galaxies were merely the visible tips of icebergs in larger halos. Right. Um, were you convinced by that at the time? How seriously uh, did you take that?
2: Oh, quite seriously. Uh, less seriously the notion that this is not simply Jupiters or ah. or, or icebergs. Yes. No, no, but of course, I did spend some time thinking about ice, icebergs.
1: Comets, it, I think, was in vogue at one right. point. Right. Well,
2: you can, hide dark, you can hide matter in lots of ways. And so why not hide the dark matter and make it baryons? There was a good argument against that from light element production, but I never could bring myself to believe you guys really knew the helium abundance. Oh, that's to say very interesting. The There's a certain
1: irony there, as oh, you the yeah. that's that's very Things ironic. That come <laughs> around, go around, right? Sometimes,
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, dark matter, as a non-baryonic component, didn't gain much credence with me or I think anyone until the early '80s.
1: Right. Well, I was actually going to move to that because yeah. you wrote a very important paper in 1982, which one some might say was really the first. Mm-hmm paper on galaxy structure formation via what we now call cold dark matter.
2: And the anisotropy in the microwave background.
1: Yes. So yeah. I was going to ask you how you came to that vision and who you were talking to at the time. Uh,
2: the Princeton group was working hard to find departures from a dead smooth sea of thermal radiation. Uh, there was a transient apparent detection of a large anisotropy, relatively large, part and ten to the fourth. Mm by the Princeton Group and by another group based on the Canary Islands, whose names I forget. Uh, Well, we had an effect apparently, so I made a theory. That's what what I do for a living, Mm -hmm. to to make a cosmology that would produce that anisotropy.
1: But that was temporary.
2: Well, it didn't last long. I'd like to reflect that if the detection were real, that theory would be celebrated.
3: Uh Uh-huh. Yeah.
2: But no, <laughs> the anisotropy bounds went down and the theory went out the window and in desperation I introduced what we now call lambda CDM in two steps, first CDM, then lambda CDM. Lambda C, yeah. And it was, I didn't mean, mean to, I didn't argue that this is the way reality has to be but rather that it's a working model of how reality could be to allow galaxies to form by gravity.
1: Or uh, the subtlety of that answer is lost on me. (laughs) Could you repeat that? I don't
2: think I can remember.
1: (laughs) What did you just say? (laughs) I still
2: very much like the notion that gravity was a dominant driver of large-scale structure formation. Okay. What else could do it? Well, explosions, except they're awfully destructive. Right. Uh But if it's gravity, it's got to have consequences. And one of the consequences would be that it would disturb the microwave background radiation in a computable way. Mm -hmm. That led, of course, first to the paper that was soon abandoned, the the model that was abandoned, then the model that worked. Mm -hmm. And the model that worked was introduced simply because it works. It fits, it's viable, it fits all of the constraints.
1: So the, the challenge was to avoid lumps in the microwave background while at the same time having Making lumps that were big enough to make galaxies. Very good. Yes. It's right. a balancing act. And it's fairly interesting that the scale invariant spectrum basically solves that problem for us.
2: Along with the ability of the dominant mass component to cluster while not disturbing strongly exactly. the radiation.
3: That's right. Yeah.
2: That's right. At the time, remember, we had a transient detection of a several-volt, no, what was it, 17-volt? Neutrino? Neutrino mass.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: That triggered, I remember, a flow of papers. If it could be neutrinos. It could be some particle from particle physics, some, some new particle and predicted by particle physics ideas. A flood of candidates for dark matter particles appeared. Uh, the flood hasn't stopped. No. Mm-hmm. The detection is yet to come. So but suddenly we became conditioned to dark matter that is not baryons. Baryons.
1: So, let me just ask you now, years later, how happy are you with lambda CDM? Do you still have worries, and what are some projects that we need to work on in order to clear those up?
2: Uh, I mentioned my conditioning, mm-hmm. and I still stick to it. Uh, darn it, we have a we have a model for particle physics that has been tested all different ways, thoroughly, exhaustively. In, a, in cosmology, we have, a, we have quite a few tests, but they compare nowhere at all to the tests of, of particle physics, to say nothing of the tests of chemistry, let us say. Right. You're talking about precision. Precision and, th- and, and depth and detail of, of tests. We, we adopt lambda-CDM as a good approximation, and I'm convinced it is. Okay. But I I see the depth of tests as being much more sparse than uh, to be convincing that this is really the answer. And
1: do you think that that is temporary or sort of probably permanent?
2: No, I think it's temporary. Uh, I think I would be happier if people would direct their attention a little more outside the box of lambda CDM.
1: And what is in the periphery that's interesting?
2: Well, if I'm going to be talking about some things this afternoon, may I introduce another commercial, (laughs) (laughs) attend my colloquium, and you'll hear me um, roll some bombs down the aisle. Great. (laughs) I think we should be still asking ourselves the question, um, are are there viable alternatives to the standard cosmology? It's a demanding question because there are the tests that very convincingly point to lambda CDM. But the tests are sparse, in my opinion, Mm -hmm. and it means that if we think outside the box, we might find something new. I guess the most vivid illustration of this, actually, is the dark matter sector. The standard model makes the simplest of all assumptions. A gas of purely collisionless, initially cold particles and Einstein's cosmological constant. What could be simpler? Well, you know, nature should decide, not us. Mm-hmm. And it's so easy to imagine that the dark matter is not one class of particles, but many. Sure. Each with its own We properties. already know that it's t- at least we neutrinos. Know and, and, That's right. Yeah, That's we know right. that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why shouldn't it be three or four or a dozen? Right. And should all of that, aside from neutrinos, be as ultimately simple as our standard model? Mm-hmm. Maybe, but maybe not. Maybe there's a collisional part, a part that has long-range interactions, a part that annihilates, a part that decays. Right. And maybe that melange of dark matter particles will have some observational effects. If it doesn't, then, of course, it's uninteresting, in my opinion.
1: Well, I was going to ask you what you thought the major outstanding unsolved problems were, observations that didn't weren't explained rather neatly by the current simple paradigm. You want to just say a couple words about that? My
2: thinking is the big puzzle is galaxies. Ah, okay. We have, on the one hand, wonderfully successful simulations. We have, on the other hand, some really dazzling puzzles. I'm so taken with thin-disk galaxies.
1: Oh, yes, okay. Mm -hmm.
2: Would you agree that our Milky Way galaxy, on which there are many papers written about the bulge component, doesn't have a bulge.
1: Uh, well, in a manner of speaking, I would agree with that.
2: Isn't that neat? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, experts on the bulge have agreed. Well, yes, it's not really a classical bulge.
1: Right. I think Isn't we, that neat? We'll, we'll talk about that at dinner tonight. We right? will.
2: <laughs> but it's an example of how uh, in the simulations one very naturally pr- produces uh, uh, classical bulges. And indeed, many spirals have classical bulges, all well and good. Mm-hmm. But if we're to trust the people I talked to on this point, there are lots of spirals that don't have classical bulges. That's right. And I think they're a dazzlingly neat problem.
1: Yep. I would agree with that. Good. I'm glad you chose that one. Let me um, ask you about another question, okay? So would you agree that one of the fundamental numbers in lambda cdm is the amplitude of the density fluctuation spectrum.
2: I don't know. I'm, I, I tend to... How could it I not be? I tend not to classify numbers or theories. To me, uh, the theory of raising bees is as interesting as the theory of the expanding universe. Do you see my point? It, it's all nature operating and it's neat. Well, but I don't see any, any way to rank neatness.
1: Well, Let's not get too diverted. It is a number which is there in the theory. We would like to know where it comes from. And so my first question among my little next list of questions for you is, where does that number come from and do you see any prospects for getting it soon?
2: We have uh, a very promising theory of the universe before, a a promising answer to Bob Dickey's question, what was the universe doing before it was expanding? Adjust that a little bit, and you come to the answer, uh, inflation. Yes. But inflation isn't a theory, in my opinion. It's a scenario. I agree. In which you must fill in the blanks.
1: That's right. Uh And
2: I see see not a lot of progress in that direction. If we find evidence of gravitational waves left over from inflation, it will be marvelous, and it will make me a believer.
1: All right. The, uh, I, my question's a little bit different. Within yeah. the context of the inflationary scenario, what do we need to know in order to predict the amplitude of the density fluctuations that are coming out of it?
2: Right. Well, you see, we, we construct a castle in the sand, don't we? Multi-field inflation with a potential thus shaped. Yeah. It's all beautiful, uh-huh. but it's all in our little minds. <laughs> and where is nature?
1: Okay, so uh, you, you don't have any um, optimism there. Oh, no, nor, the nor pessimism. Nor pessimism.
2: Let's see, let, let, let a thousand flowers bloom, uh-huh. and let's see what happens.
1: Okay, let me ask you then. I'm
2: trying to hang on as long as I can to see.
1: <laughs> That's right. So let me ask you my next question, which was a little similar to that, uh, the nature of dark energy.
2: Now there is a gorgeous problem. The Nobel Prize waiting to be won.
1: Several, I would say. <laughs> Several,
2: yes. Uh, no ideas. Uh, Barrett Ratra and I wrote a paper on the rolling value of the constant, what is now called what is quintessence and dark energy. Um, you asked me how I felt about this or that paper, and my answer, I think, is always the same. Well, okay, maybe that'll be worth something, or maybe not. Yeah. Okay. Let's wait and see.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, do you think that there? Do you see any good ways of figuring out what dark energy is?
2: I, of course, support the search for evolution and its value. Mm-hmm. I depreciate the concentration on that one problem. It's, it's important, vital, but why are we throwing so many resources on that one question?
1: It's expensive. Yes. If, I mean, if you want to do that question, then you have to spend a lot of money but for But there it. are
2: several groups doing it.
1: All right. And
2: why... And, of course, it's wonderful if several groups do it and they get consistent answers. It's an important check. Yeah. Meanwhile, while you search under the street lamp, there's all those bugs hopping around out in the dark.
3: Where's
1: it, a bug that we should be looking? I wish I knew. Okay. <laughs> Unfair. Oh no, um, no, it's
2: a very fair question.
1: All right. So, related to me, to my way of thinking, to dark energy, is the old steady-state cosmology. And... I'm sort of embarrassed to admit how long it took me to figure out that dark energy really is inflation all over again. Yes. Okay, but it is. Yeah. Now, the interesting um, here's a quote from your prefatory chapter. You say that you were shocked by the steady state cosmology, and they just made that up, you said.
2: Yes.
1: How can you write that today? <laughs> When we're doing it all over again.
2: Well, you just made it up too. (laughs) But the difference, the big, big difference, is the experimental observational evidence. It makes all the difference in the world. To me, in those days, to present a well-worked model of the universe out of whole cloth, it's not something... Just on
1: philosophical grounds, without data.
2: Now, I don't at all depreciate the making of that model out of whole cloth, I depreciate the defending of it.
1: Ah, I see. Mm-hmm.
2: Throw it out there, let it sink or swim. Uh uh-huh. okay. But don't get emotional about it.
1: <laughs> so let me mention another statement from your prefatory chapter, which I thought was really interesting. You are writing about your skepticism very early on. I think you were either an assistant professor or still a grad student. Skepticism about the Friedman-Lemaître model. Yes. Which you said you likened to an elephant run rolling frictionless down a, an inclined plane. Yes. Maybe a better analogy would be the famous statement in physics: the spherical cow. Yes. Which fits perfectly in this case. The spherical cow fits the spherical better. Co- I
2: wonder if I may revise my. <laughs> you may.
1: You may. You may. <laughs> so now, what do you think? And by asking this question, let me also made it directly with the concept of the cosmological principle because it has seemed to me that the friedmann lemaitre model and the cosmological principle are opposite sides of the same coin. That's right. So now what is your thinking about those two points of view or that twin point of view today? How well does it fit modern cosmology now?
2: It's amazing, isn't it? Uh, how, uh, first, the theory Einstein invented Almost a century ago, general relativity survives the extrapolation to the scales of cosmology's dazzling success. Then the philosophical notion that, of Einstein's that uh, a satisfactory universe ought to be homogeneous, and here it is, to wonderful precision, homogeneous.
1: Well, that's okay. That doesn't bother me because we have inflation to explain that over the scales we're looking I should explain that the seed of my question really is on much larger scales.
2: Where we'll never know.
1: Ah, that's a very interesting question. We'll never know. Never is a long time.
2: Well, yes, but I've, I've never been able to get myself interested in things that are out of reach. I was led to reflect the other day, my wife is a birder, and I've always liked birds, But I noticed that I have never taken an interest in the name of a bird as a kid or today. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed also that I was aware that there are stars and planets, but I never took an interest in them because I couldn't get at them. Mm. I was much more interested in a rock
3: Mm.
2: that had a funny shape than in a star because I could hold the rock. And I think that early conditioning led me later in life to think, well, if I can compute something measured, I'm going to get excited. But if, it's, if, if the measurement is out of reach, well, there are so many other measurements that are possible so to you, analyze. So do you
1: respond by just not thinking about it?
2: I think that's a fair statement.
1: So my next question uh, carries this one level further to ask you whether you think that there are parallel other universes. Yes. And to me, that question is intimately bound up with whether one adopts the anthropic cosmological view, namely, where do these numbers come from? You're a physicist. The business of physicists is to measure numbers.
2: And to explain where they came from.
1: Exactly, which is why I was mentioning the amplitude of the, yes. of the density. Yes. So yes. To me, that that's a very fundamental number. And yes. the amount of dark energy is a very fundamental yeah. Where, What is your philosophy about explaining things like that. And let me put it even more succinctly. What number among the fundamental physical uh, constants has ever been explained by a physical theory?
2: The age of the universe. Really? Since the start of expansion of our universe. Consider that uh, for you and me to exist in a hot Big Bang, we have to have allowed time for a few generations of stars to form, Evolve, make heavy elements, then cool off, form a planet, and allow bacteria to colonize and make, and so on and so on. Add up the time, uh, a, an argument I learned from Bob Dickey it takes about 10 to the 10th years.
1: Yeah, it, it seems to me that that's an anthropic argument.
2: Well, it is, and it's also an argument of consistency. Yes. Our it universe shows. could not have been much younger or much older than it is, or we wouldn't be here.
1: Yes, but isn't that the quintessential anthropic argument? I
2: guess so. It's the same argument that says there have never been large civilizations in Antarctica. (laughs) Uh, And then you are entitled to respond, well, all right. So you build a civilization where it's convenient, and you choose a universe that's convenient. And isn't that multiverses?
1: Well, I don't know what I'm looking for. I mean, the fact is that the air is rather uniformly spread out in this room, and we can appeal to entropic principles entropic, to explain yes, that. Okay? Yes. I was hoping what you would say in answer to my question that the flatness of the universe comes naturally out of a process. Maybe we don't need the process, but if the process is common, then flat universes are all over the place.
3: You know? yes. And that's
1: independent of an anthropic. That, that's appealing to a common process in nature, if I may use those words. Yes. And that's the only number that I can think of that has ever been explained in a way that's not anthropic. And I wonder if you agree with that.
2: No, gosh, no. But I, I probably didn't follow the argument well. Hmm. Um, I can imagine living in a universe in which there is one galaxy... And asymptotically empty space time okay it would fit us fine we wouldn't we wouldn 't miss those other galaxies
3: mm-hmm.
2: so we ask ourselves is this this is first a universe that is consistent with our existence Second, we ask, is it consistent with the laws of physics
1: sure let 's make it that way
2: well but we don 't know the answer uh-huh. because we don 't understand. For example, we might say inflation explains it all, except you didn't tell me where inflation is based on. As I say, what was the origin of the space-time in which inflation operated? Right. Well, it was string theory. But what was the origin of string theory? Mm. Uh, To me, me, there is no fundamental, in my opinion, there is no fundamental theory. Instead, it's successive approximations all the way down. All the way down.
1: (laughs) Great. So I think we're nearing the end of our conversation, and I'm going to ask you one final question and and ask you what you wish I had asked you in the first place, (laughs) (laughs) if there is any such thing. But let me ask you first. Looking back on Mm. all the wonderful things that you have done, is there something in particular that really stands out for you that you take almost immodest personal pride in in having achieved. What's the Mount Everest for you in your career?
2: I'm not sure there is one. I hate to be pedestrian about this, but just as I feel that all natural science is fascinating, all of my works are fascinating. (laughs) That's great. <laughs> More or less. Everything is wonderful. <laughs> Everything is wonderful except the things that were wrong. I make mistakes <laughs> and I hate it. I hate it, but that's all right. I get by. I I'd survive. Mm-hmm. Where do I think physics is going? Natural science. Um, there, there's got to be an end. We can't keep making these ever larger experiments, observ- observatories. There has to be a bound.
1: Very worrisome, isn't it? I don't
2: know, because uh, I look at this century as a century of the science of life, okay. from, from the practical side mm-hmm. to the deep theoretical side. What does it mean to be alive?
3: Mm-hmm.
2: That's going to be this century's great forward progress. What will the next century do? Well, they'll think of something.
1: Would you advise young people to be going into astronomy or cosmology?
2: It would depend very much on their inclinations. Just as I tend to be a loner and when I got into cosmology and gravity physics that was the appropriate mode of operation, a wonderful fit. If I were a young person with my personal characteristics I would look at cosmology or astronomy and think, my god, are you going to have to join a group of several hundred people? Mm
3: -hmm.
2: No, I'm going to do something else, maybe geology. Mm. I've always loved looking at rocks. (laughs) <laughs> or maybe archaeology,
3: uh-huh.
2: <laughs> or maybe biophysics, and in biophysics, if I make an invention, it's going to have a big effect. <laughs> right. So no, I, I, let's go where the action is. And but but a young person today, and there are lots of them, who is comfortable with high technology, which again is not me, mm-hmm. and who uh, works well with friends and plays well with friends. Mm-hmm. Sure, go in. There's so much... Of course, cosmology, as classically defined, is pretty limited. And I can imagine it running out of steam simply because there are no more measurements. The the, the next level of measurement requires the national economy. Yes. Uh, but mm-hmm. that's not the case in astronomy. You guys are never going to run out of fascinating things to look at. Well, that's uh, very that's true. That's a fair prediction, isn't it? I think so, right. And, so, uh, and, and indeed, not only that, but... Uh, A single astronomer can still make significant contributions, or an astronomer with a colleague or two.
1: Even an amateur. Uh,
2: Even an amateur can make significant contributions. That is right. I I mean, I've even experienced that. (laughs) And uh, that's not going to change. You just have too much sky to look at.
1: Well, on that note, I think we'll close our interview, and let me thank you so much for all your many stimulating remarks. It's been a pleasure.
2: I've enjoyed it, Sandy. Yeah,
1: thank you.
0: You've been listening to Annual Reviews Audio. For over 80 years, Annual Reviews has guided scientists to the essential research literature in the biomedical, life, physical, and social sciences. Learn more at annualreviews.org. I'm Anna Rasquad-Paz. Thanks for listening.